Each of us have had moments that we would say are turning points in our lives. Every single one of us have had those moments, whether it was getting into a specific school, being hired for a a particular job, or even maybe it's just having a child or getting married, or maybe it was hitting rock bottom and you having that rock bottom moment where you came to your senses and it seemed as if when you look back on your life, everything was altered from that point forward. Not only in our personal lives, but even throughout the history of the world, there have been decisive moments that many say have served as turning points in history. Those pivotal moments are even movements that alter the course of a generation, of an era, or even a war. Isolated events, inventions, or even people that have shaped human thinking and even shaped progress throughout the world. We think of philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and their influence on ancient Greco-Roman thought and worldview for better or for worse. We think about the sacking of Rome by King Alaric of the Visigoths in 410 AD, serving as the fall of the Western Roman Empire, or the invention of the, of the Gutenberg printing press in 1440, which forever changed the landscape of society in terms of mass communication, literacy, and access to information that was unheard of up until that time in history. In more modern history, we think about the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the devastations of World War II, and even our own age of information and technology that just keeps on expanding at a rapid pace. All of these were major moments, and our major moments were things on a world scale seemed to utterly shift. And a part of world history is church history, which has certainly had its own pivotal moments, turning points that we would say that have changed the landscape of the church, of missions, and really the centrality of God's word in the world. And though we often want to turn to the creeds and the councils of the 4th and 5th centuries, or we want to turn to the Reformations, the English Reformation, or the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, but all of those things would not have happened without Acts chapters 10 and 11. The thing that comes before all of them, of how we even get to the creeds and the councils and the reformations. Our text today not only serves as one of the major moments or turning points in the book of Acts, it serves as one of the major turning points in church history and the history of the world. It has forever changed the landscape of Christianity throughout the world. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 10, all the way to Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Acts chapter 10, all the way to Acts chapter 11, verse 18. So as you're turning there, I just want to kind of fill you in on on just the context of where we're at right here. This is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, and for good reason. This moment has been brewing since chapter 1. As Jesus was ascending to the Father in Acts 1, he told his disciples in verse 8, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As the gospel is preached in Jerusalem and people are saved, the gospel begins to spiral on out to the ends of the earth, to the nations. But this movement outward is really tied to its context around it, which is important for setting up Acts chapter 10. Right? We're not going to understand how we get to Cornelius' conversion unless we understand what's going on around it. And so in Acts chapter 9, we met a furious Pharisee 
named Saul or later Paul, whom God just extraordinarily saves. And he says to him that he will be his chosen instrument to take Jesus' name to the Gentiles. This is Acts 10, or Acts 9, right before Acts 10. Who would Paul later become? Other than the apostle to the Gentiles. Both of which, right, we get in Acts 9, Paul's conversion. Then we come to Acts chapter 10. Last week we encountered a little hole-in-the-wall text right before we got to this text today where the apostle Peter heals a paralyzed uh, man and resurrects a woman from the dead. Both of those, the healing and the resurrection, they serve as physical pictures of the spiritual reality that is happening on either either side of that text. Paul's conversion, and as we're going to see today, Cornelius' conversion. All of this is leading up to this text. And yet, instead of Paul taking the gospel to the Gentiles, interestingly, Luke shifts the focus back to Peter, who will be the one to take the gospel to the first Gentile convert. Peter serving almost as a gatekeeper, in some sense, to the church. The very one who would hypocritically struggle with some of the things that we are going to deal with in this text. God has divinely ordained that Peter, head of the apostles, and within the church during that time, take the gospel to the first Gentile. So let's read this conversion story in Acts 10 all the way to Acts chapter 11, verse 18. We are going to read the whole thing. It is the longest narrative in the book, but it's going to serve your soul. Because if you've not read this entire narrative, it's going to be extremely helpful for you to be able to hear it read to you and to follow along as we go. Okay? I am going to move at a quick clip because it is a long uh, it is a long story. And so try to keep up with the pace and follow along. Um, yeah, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Might as well get started. Acts chapter 10, starting there in verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, What is it, Lord? The angel told him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and he wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened in an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, What God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly 
the object was taken up into heaven. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, right away the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked direction to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What's the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day, he got up and set out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. The following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. Peter said to them, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So I immediately sent for you, and it was good for you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised, God raised this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone, who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues 
and declared the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began to explain to them step by step, I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. At that moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, So then, God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. All right. Long text. But I think what we see right here in the progression of this story is like a typical story. It's got a plot arc with characters and with a rising conflict and a climax and resolution and following action. We've got multiple scenes that are ultimately leading to that climax of the Gentiles receiving the Spirit. And all of these scenes, I think, are highlighting one point in particular that gets repeated over and over and over in this text. And I think it's this, for this text. That anyone who believes in God's Son receives God's Spirit and is included in God's family. And that's very simple. For some of you, you may be like, well, yeah, I mean, I've heard that ever since I can't remember. But that's the point of the text. And for those that are just now hearing this, especially those of the circumcision party, they're thinking this is incredible. They're praising God for it. And so we should feel the weight of that and the newness of it for those who finally heard this, that anyone who believes in God's Son receives God's Spirit and is included in God's family. Anyone who believes in God's Son receives God's Spirit and is included in God's family. Or if you want to get a single verse that really gets at this, chapter 11, verse 18. 
I think that summarizes really the point of the text. When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, So then, God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. You just want to get it a single verse. I think it's verse 18. And Luke really makes his point by focusing on some of the major themes in the book of Acts, which is fascinating because they all converge, it seems like, in this narrative. A lot of those major themes that we've already been looking at are now converging into one minus suffering. We don't get that in this text. But a lot of them are converging together. And so what we're going to see is that throughout these scenes, we're going to be highlighting really these themes that are popping up throughout the text. And so point number one, we're looking at God's plan in point number one, really focusing on those visions of Peter and of Cornelius. Point number one, God's plan in verses 1 to 16. Now, there is going to be some overlap, right, in these scenes, but point number one is going to be God's plan. Point number two, through God's people in proclamation. So we're going to see God's plan through God's people in proclamation in verses 17 to 43. And then that his people in proclamation are going to go to all people in point number three, to all people. So God's plan through God's people in proclamation to all people in verses 44 to 48. And why is all of this happening? Ultimately, it's for God's glory, which is point number four. God's glory. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Right, so those kind of four movements, really highlighting those four themes, those four major themes in the text, there will be overlap in some of them. So point number one, God's plan. The story begins with two visions. The first happens to a man named Cornelius, as you see there in verse 1. Cornelius was a centurion of the Italian regiment in Caesarea. That meant that he had status, and he was a prominent figure uh, within society. As a centurion, he was a commander over 100 soldiers, and those 100 men were part of the Italian regiment, which, which was made up of 600 soldiers. Not only that, Cornelius was a man from a city of status. Caesarea was a coastal city on the Mediterranean Sea that housed the Roman administration and the headquarters of Judea. It was a prominent Roman port. And so there's a lot of influence there, a lot of status there. But more important than Cornelius' position in the text, did you notice, is his piety. It's his character. More important than his position is his piety. It's his character. Look at how Luke describes Cornelius in verse 2. He's a devout man, which means that he feared God. He led his family to be devout to the Lord. His devotion was expressed through charitable deeds and through being a prayer warrior of sorts. He was praying constantly, all the time. In verse 22, we're told that he had a good reputation before the Jewish people. All that to say, Cornelius was not your typical convert, or your typical, uh, sorry, your typical Gentile. We're not there to convert yet, but he wasn't your typical Gentile. He wasn't, right? He's not your pagan seaman of Acts 27. He's not your barbarian on the island of Malta there in Acts 28. Instead, he is a God-fearer who was close to God, though he was not converted. Close to God without being converted. And yet, for all of Cornelius' sincerity, he wasn't saved. For all of his sincerity, he was not saved. He still needed to hear the message from 
Peter, by which he and his household would be saved. That's why they went through all of this work of this whole chapter back and forth. He had to hear the message, he and his household, in order to be saved. And friends, this is a reminder that our salvation is not based upon our sincerity, but upon our Savior. Right? Many of us have experienced this. Growing up in the church, maybe you struggled with the assurance of your salvation. Right? Is that salvation legit or not? Maybe you went to church camp after church camp and youth retreat after youth, youth retreat, making a profession, rededicating your life to Christ. Maybe you were baptized for the second, the third, or the fourth time. Maybe you walked the aisle, you prayed the prayer over and over and over again, all to make sure that that faith was sincere and that it was genuine. Many of us have done that. And what that reveals is our insecurity regarding our salvation, worrying about whether or not God counts our faith as what? Strong enough to be saved. Strong enough to be saved. And no wonder we're insecure because who can judge? Who can judge how sincere is sincere enough? Who can judge that? But we need to ask ourselves, why the insecurity? Why the insecurity? Might it be that we viewed our salvation subjectively, as if it's dependent upon us? Now, I would assume that most of you in here would say, I know I'm not saved by works, right? You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say, well, I know I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm saved by works. You would not say that. I know that the majority of you in here wouldn't do that. But neither are you saved by your own sincerity of faith. We are not saved by good intentions or the strength or the, of our emotions or passion for God. Sincerity of faith doesn't save. God saves us as sinners despite us. He saves us by his gracious work in Christ according to his plan of salvation. Conversion is first and foremost an act of God before it is the response of man of repentance and faith. Christianity is not a religion of self-salvation. It's not a religion of self-salvation. Whether that's doing good works to be saved or just having good intentions and sincerity of, of faith to be saved. And so parents, as you're helping your children discern salvation, remind them that not only are we not saved by works, but neither are we saved by the sincerity or the strength of our faith. Rather than asking, did you truly believe? You can ask them, who did you believe in? Who did you believe in? Look to him. Look to Christ, the object of our trust. Because our faith is only is as good as the object of its trust. Look to Christ. And ultimately, that's going to help them come to a greater confidence and a greater assurance, which, oddly enough, is exactly why Luke is writing this book. If you remember, it's volume two of a two-volume work. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke. At the very beginning, in the introduction of the Gospel of Luke, why is he writing to Theophilus, his friend? He wants to give Theophilus certainty regarding all that he has been taught. Friends, you can have certainty regarding all the things that you have been taught when you look to Christ and all the work that he has done. 
It's upon our Savior that we are saved, not the sincerity of faith. Though, as a result, we want our faith to be sincere, (laughs) as a caveat. But all throughout this text, we are being reminded that this is God's action in salvation. I mean, it is just blatant all over this text. God is orchestrating this conversion according to his plan. Look at all the ways that he does this. I'm just going to move you on through this entire passage. All right, so join with me. Look at verses 3 to 6. An angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius in a vision and and instructs him where to go and how to find Peter in verses 3 to 6, right? The Lord is doing that through the angel. Again, Peter has a vision, and God declares to him three times that what Peter calls impure, God has made clean in verses 9 to 16. Later in verse 19, as Peter was thinking about this vision, the Spirit tells him to get up, to go downstairs, because three men are looking for him, just so happens to be looking at him at the time that the Lord is speaking to him. They're looking for him, because the Spirit has sent them in verse 20. Verse 22, the men tell Peter that Cornelius was divinely directed to call Peter to his house. Verse 28, Peter says that it's God that has shown him that he must not call any person impure or unclean. Peter says in verse 38 that God anointed Jesus and was with him, that God raised up Jesus in verse 40 and appointed Peter and the apostles as witnesses in verse 41, and appointed Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead in verse 42. The Holy Spirit comes down on all who hear Peter's message in verse 44. And finally, we get to chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. And Peter says that if God gave the Gentiles the same gift of the Spirit as he did them, Peter and the rest of the apostles, then how can he possibly hinder God. God is the one who has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. I mean, I don't know how much more clear you can be in this text that this is all of God's work and plan running all the way through it, orchestrating this salvation of the Gentiles. All of this emphasizing that God is orchestrating his plan of salvation. He's initiating it. He is moving the story along. And so the question that we need to ask, knowing that God is the one orchestrating this plan, is, well, okay, well, what is that plan? What's that plan? We see part of it in Peter's vision in verses 9 to 16. Look there. Peter has a vision. An object resembling a large sheet comes down from heaven. On it are unclean animals, reptiles, and birds. And God commands Peter to kill and eat. Peter says, no, for I've never eaten anything impure or ritually unclean. Why does he do that? What's up with Peter? I mean, just, I mean, this looks like great food. Why didn't he just, you know, come on. There's nothing wrong with this. But Peter's Jewish. Back in chapter 11 of Leviticus, food laws were established for Israel to keep them ritually clean or holy before the Lord. And inevitably, these food laws were linked to their separation from the nations around them in Leviticus 20. And so the nations, they did not abide by these food laws. They didn't abide by any of the laws of God. And so for a Jew, you can imagine, for a Jew to go into a Gentile's home, they know that there are going to be things in there, things that are served up that they're not allowed to have. And so they can't just walk into a Gentile's home because if if so, they would transgress one of God's laws. All that to say, food laws 
and Israel's separation from the nations, they are inextricably linked and related. Peter says as much to Cornelius. Look at verse 28. This is important. He says to Cornelius in verse 28, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But guess what? Not anymore. Not anymore. The voice says to Peter three times, giving confirmation to its legitimacy in verse 15, that what God has made clean, you do not call impure. And slowly, Peter comes to understand what's meant by this vision. Now look at the second half of verse 28. But God, wonderful phrase, but God has shown me that I must not call any person. So we're moving from food laws, we're tying it related to people, nations, that I must not call any person impure or unclean, making the connection between those food laws and the separation from the nations. This same God who is telling Peter, (laughs) who is telling him to abide by these food laws, is now telling Peter that he can basically eat anything. So what's going on here? Is God just kind of talking out both sides of his mouth right here? Well, no, I don't think that's what's going on. All of this was all a part of the same plan. That old story, as we just sang about in that gospel song. The old ways served their purpose, and they came to their fulfillment in Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes up, and he says... I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is its fulfillment. Paul says in Romans 10, 4, that Christ is the end. He is the goal of the law. The telos namu, the goal of the law. The one whom the law pointed toward and found its fulfillment in. He is its end. He is the one who perfectly embodies the law of God. Do you want to see the law of God in a person? It's Jesus Christ. As it's been said, the lawmaker became the law keeper for lawbreakers. The lawmaker became the law keeper for lawbreakers. And because of this, a new era has begun in God's one plan to unite a people for himself from all peoples through faith in God's Son, which is what we're going to look at ultimately in a later point. But I think this is instructive for us in understanding God's plan. God does not have a plan B. There is no backup plan. Because God doesn't need backup plans. Because there is only plan A. There is only one plan of God. And it is executed perfectly. Old ways may come to an end and a new era may begin. But all of that is according to God's unified plan. His one plan. Friends, think about how understanding God's plan in this way can actually free you from being enslaved to fear, worry, and anxiety. Thinking that if your life doesn't go according to your plan, then somehow God got it wrong. But in reality, though, you were just living according to your plan. When we align our hearts to the plan of God, we're living in obedience to God's word no matter what comes into our lives. God never tells us how our lives are going to tell out, or how they're going to turn out. Never tells us how our lives will turn out. But he shows us how to live at every turn 
And how does he do that? He does that through his revealed will that he has already given to you in his word. This is how to live at every turn. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but you know how to live at every turn according to God's word. And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged that even if your life hasn't turned out in the way that you were expecting, it's still lived under the good, sovereign plan of God. It's still lived under his plan. Knowing that God's plan doesn't change is freeing because no matter how our lives turn out, we know that for all who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good, as promised in Romans 8, 28. God may be doing new things in your life that are new for you that you've not expected, but trust that they're not outside of his plan and that he's using even regretful moments and even will redeem them all in the end whenever his son returns to restore all things. God's plan is good in saving you. His plan is good in working out that salvation in you. Whenever Christ returns, all is going to be restored. Despite Cornelius' sincerity, a messenger and his message are still necessary. And we turn to that theme next. Look at point number two. So we have God's plan now through God's people in proclamation. One of the major themes that I think we see throughout this section is all of the back and forth between people. I mean, God is initiating, he's orchestrating everything, but consider how many people the Lord actually uses in this story to, take, to cause this story to take place. An angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius. He tells him to send men to Joppa, which is 30 miles south of Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, in order to retrieve Peter. Cornelius sends two household servants and a devout soldier. When they do, or whenever they get to Joppa and relay Cornelius' vision to Peter in verse 23, Peter takes some of the brothers. We were told that there are about six of them. He takes some of the brothers with him, along with him, in verse 23, and then goes back up to Caesarea, another 30 days, or another 30 miles north to Caesarea off the coast of the Mediterranean. Cornelius says in verse 33 that all of them, all of these people, not just Cornelius, not just his household, but everybody else, all the friends and everyone else, are present. And God's presence is here to hear everything that Peter has commanded by the Lord. In reading this, in all the back and forth, we cannot help but wonder why God went to all this trouble just to get Peter to Caesarea. Why didn't God just save Cornelius on the spot, like, saved? Why didn't he just do that? Why all the trouble, the back and the forth? Why did he go to all of this extent just to get one man to take one message to Cornelius? Because God has chosen the proclamation of the gospel by his people as central in his plan of salvation. It's central. And why is that? We're not told. (laughs) We're not told. But what we're shown is that it's absolutely necessary. It is necessary. And that's the messenger and their message. They are necessary for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Central to God's plan of salvation is the proclamation of God's word through his, through his people. And so friends, we talked last week about the miracle of conversions. God causing, death, go, causing someone to go from death to spiritual life. We talked about how miraculous that that was. 
But have you ever considered how miraculous it is that God uses messengers as a means of saving people? The Spirit converts and then the Spirit emboldens and sends out and moves in us to go and to deliver that same message. It is still a work of God. The same Spirit that resurrects the dead heart is the same Spirit that emboldens to preach Christ. Not only was it God's plan to save you, but to also take that message of salvation to others. That's a part of God's plan. If you've been sidelined in your evangelism, whether due to your schedule, whether due to fear or even apathy, rediscover the wonder of your witness by considering God's work in your life. Reconsider it. Rediscover the wonder of your witness by considering God's work in your life. You deserve death and wrath, but he gave you life. He gave you love. Now you're righteous. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're free. And this is an act of God by his spirit through his son in your life. Friends, we wouldn't witness if there wasn't a work to witness to and to witness about. When we don't consider the work of God in our hearts, what happens? They grow cold to that work and to witnessing. And we lose the wonder. We lose that wonder of our witness. We will not be compelled to witness if we have not considered his work. And it's that work that Peter proclaims. God not only saves, but he also sends us to proclaim a message. So what is that message? Peter gives a summary of the gospel. I mean, just lays it out there in verses 34 to 43. He says in verse 36 that God sent this message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, right? That summary. And then notice how he expands on that verse by focusing on Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and our response. I can't quite get my fourth finger out there. I don't know what's going on. Four things, though. First, Jesus' life. God anointed Jesus in verses 37 to 38. He didn't do it just in verse 37 and 38, but it says that he anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit in power for his ministry whenever he was baptized by John. He went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, which testified to God being with him and that Jesus himself is God. And so he highlights on Jesus' life. He hits on Jesus' death in verse 39. As a result of Jesus' ministry and threat to the religious establishment of the day, they killed him by hanging him on a cross. Though his death was at the hands of men, God's wrath was being satisfied by his payment for our sin. Only through his death to pay for sin and satisfy God's wrath can we receive peace before God. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Thirdly, we see Jesus' resurrection in verses 40 to 41. God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. He caused him to be seen by those he appointed as witnesses. This resurrection, it was not a hallucination, nor was Jesus a ghost. But what does it say? They ate and drank with him. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. These were eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection appointed by God. And the climax of all of this is that as a result of Jesus conquering sin and death, God appointed him as the judge of the living and the dead. 
Every single one of us, both Jew and Gentile, we all sit underneath the authority of God and the authority of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of heaven and earth. And that brings us to the fourth thing that we see, is our response. The fourth thing that we see there is our response in verse 43. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. We wouldn't need forgiveness if we were not guilty sinners. But God did not leave us in our state of guilt. Instead, he provided the way for forgiveness and reconciliation with him. And that is through repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Only through Christ, only in him, is the good news of peace with God actually yours. It's only through him. And friends, because Jesus is Lord of living and the dead, all of us stand underneath his judgment. We're under his judgment. But what will that judgment one day render for you? What will it render for you on that day when Christ returns? Will the verdict of Christ be guilty or will it be pardoned? What will that that verdict be for you? Only by believing in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our place can we have the verdict of not guilty. And so turn from your sin and trust in Christ, which only testifies that you are not guilty before the Lord, but you will be pardoned before him whenever he returns. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that we testify to. It is not only us, but all the prophets as well. They're testifying to this a long time ago because God's people proclaiming the gospel is central to God's plan of salvation. We witness to his work to all people. Third point, these next two points are shorter. Yes, I know you're getting tired. To all people, point number three, verses 44 to 48. As Peter is preaching, God gives confirmation to his message by giving the Spirit to all those who heard the message. And just as the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost on Jewish Christians in Acts 2, and later upon the Samaritans in Acts 8, now the Holy Spirit is being poured out on Gentiles in Acts 10. And we're meant to see this connection between these texts. That's important to be able to see in this text. The gospel has been going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, into the ends of the earth. And each time, what it's doing is it's breaking into another region, another people, which is important. It's not just Cornelius, but it includes also his household and everybody else. And so not only is it breaking into Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria in Acts 8, but now in Acts 10, to the ends of the earth. And the confirmation that they've received the Spirit is that they begin speaking in tongues, declaring the greatness of God. In this section, what Luke is doing is he's highlighting the fulfillment of prophecy and of salvation history rather than a pattern for individual experience. It's not to make us think that this should be our individual experience when we believe the gospel, that if we don't speak in tongues, somehow we have not received the Spirit. That should not cause us to think that from this text. Instead, the focus is on their corporate experience. That's why it's connected to all those other texts, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10. It's breaking into a new area, to a new people, corporate experience. 
It's not just Cornelius, but also his household and everyone else with him. It's signifying the Gentiles as a group are now being included in the people of God. This does not serve as an individual pattern, but a pattern that God is doing in including a new people group into his people. So that now anyone who believes in the gospel receives the spirit and is included in God's family. To publicly display that, what are they then? They're baptized into that family. And so friends, this point right here, the point is that God is uniting a people for himself from everywhere. Uniting together into one people out of all peoples under his son. Bringing unity amidst diversity that anyone who believes in the gospel receives the spirit and now has access to God. Both Jews and Gentiles, once separated by food laws and circumcision, are now equal in Christ. They're equals. Brothers and sisters, if God views us equal in Christ, what might be some ways in which we're tempted to tear down that glorious equality in Jesus? Where are we tempted to erect boundaries that our society operates by rather than Christ's church? Think about some of these boundaries that we often try to erect, just even within our own society. Boundaries around age, where the multi-generational aspect of our ministry goes missing because Gen Z doesn't want to hang out with the baby boomers. And so what do we develop? We start developing demographic-based ministries. Not all wrong in doing so but segmenting out ages, not being around others. Boundaries around social ability. Think about this one, where cliques begin to form within the church with no access or entry points for other groups to be able to come in. Do we look more like a high school cafeteria than we do the people of God in heaven on that day when Christ returns? If your high school is anything like mine, Boundaries around one's cultural background, whether rural or urban or Indian or American. Where do we shy away from others because certain aspects of their culture make us uncomfortable? Friends, one of the answers to this in this text, now that food laws are being done away with, and now we're unified in Jesus, equal before the Lord, one of the answers in this text is hospitality that is now being created by incorporating both Jews and Gentiles into one people. Peter is now going into the home of a Gentile. He's now staying the night with these Gentiles. This is what the gospel does. And what it's doing is it's highlighting the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is magnifying God in his glory over all of it. And so consider, consider someone in the church that you might think is different from you in some way, that you can just share a meal with regularly. Doing so develops a greater appreciation for that person, and more importantly, it causes your heart to erupt with thanksgiving to God that the Lord has brought this person into his kingdom and that God receives the glory for all of it. Putting people together whom society says, y'all don't go together. You need to be into tribes. You don't go together. And yet the cross is bringing people together. Doing so shows off the power of the cross to unite what the world wants to separate and to glorify the one who made it all happen, which is our final point, for the glory of God. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. As we come to this final section, one can't help but notice how many times 
this story just gets repeated and repeated and repeated. Cornelius, his vision repeated four times. Peter's vision repeated twice in this story, all stressing the importance of this event, not only for the book of Acts, but for salvation history as a whole. And as Peter recounts this vision of the church in Jerusalem, one wonders, ultimately, how are people going to respond to this? People that were separated from you are now being included into you. Initially, Peter was criticized by going into uncircumcised men, into their home. But as they hear of the good work of God, they begin to see this moment for what it is. Just as the Gentiles were declaring the greatness of God in verse 46, so we have these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem declaring the glory of God in verse 18 of chapter 11. This is what they say. When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Friends, the goal of uniting a diverse people around God's son is God's glory. That's the purpose. This reminds us what salvation is for. We are saved for the glory of God. God has given this repentance resulting in life, and he deserves the glory for it. We can't take credit for that. It is not for our salvation that God saves us. God saves us for his glory. He saves us for his glory. I love as one brother put it, everything changes when we understand that our salvation is about God's glory. Think about how this changes in your life. No longer is the Christian life about asserting my Christian rights. It's about laying down my life to serve others. No longer is the church an outlet for my calling and gifts. It's a community where God's grace is displayed. The mystery is that the happy, fulfilled life comes whenever we stop pursuing it and instead pursue God and find in his glory the salvation we always longed for. Conversion ought to result in praise to God. No human ingenuity could think it up. No amount of persuasion can accomplish it. Only God alone can save. Friend, praise God for your conversion. You ought to leave here praising God for your conversion. And you ought to leave here actually praising God for the neighbor next to you and that he converted them too, Lord willing. Praise God for both. Praise God for all conversions because anyone who believes in God's Son receives God's Spirit and is included in God's family. Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you that even in the midst of this long narrative and yet so important for us to understand, Lord, we give praise to you that you have done the good work of sending out your people to preach your son, to include people who are not your people into your people. And so, Lord, we praise you that when we look around this room, that's us. And we praise you for that great work. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in response in going to the nations, going to those in our community, those around us, preaching this good news of peace with you, of salvation through your Son. And so, Lord, keep us faithful in that to the very end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.